Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Jane Anson, the Bordeaux correspondent for Decanter Magazine on the show. Hello, how are you? Hi, I'm great. Thank you for asking me to join you on the show. It's great to be back in New York. Great to have you here. So where'd you grow up? I grew up in, in Oxford in England, and I was um, in Oxford till about I was 13 and then moved up to the north of England to Manchester. What was that like? A big difference. Oxford, big university town, incredibly traditional, beautiful um, the, the dreaming spires of Oxford. And then I moved when I was 13 to a big industrial city, which is Manchester, one of the biggest in, in England. But it was a great time to go as a teenager. I had a fun teenage year in years in, in Manchester. You knew David Beckham was going to come one day. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you were ahead of the game. I was ahead of the game. What brought on that move? My parents, my mother remarried. Was there a lot of wine around when you were a kid? Or? I, I didn't have the classic English upbringing where you're born in London and having cellars belonging t- to my parents' friends. I kind of got into wine much more slowly. And my drink as a teenager was what all teenage English people drink, which was mainly cider and some beer. But my real introduction to wine was when I got to Hong Kong when I was about 22. How'd that come together? Um, I was at Sheffield University reading English literature, and the day after I graduated, I moved to Japan. I spent one year teaching in Tokyo, this wonderful program that's called the Japan Exchange and Teaching Program, where the Japanese government gets um, English-speaking graduates from the States, from Canada, from all over, anywhere that speaks English, and and you're sent over there, and you work in the middle school. And it was uh, just a wonderful, wonderful experience. So after one year there, I had the the bug of um, living in Asia. I didn't want to go home, so I moved to Hong Kong at a time when it was still owned. Owned. That's a terrible thing to say. <laughs> Start again. Very um, colonial. Yeah, but it was still um, an English. It was, in fact, the last English colony. So I was there from 94 till 97, and I was working as a journalist. I had become interested, even when I was teaching in Japan, I was writing, I was um, editing a, a, a magazine for English-speaking teachers out there. And so I'd, I'd kind of got that bug as well. And I, I moved to Hong Kong and started working for the South China Morning Post, for the Eastern Express, for the Hong Kong Standard. Two of those three papers no longer exist because the English language market has shrunk so much, of course, in Hong Kong. But I was there at a time when it was just a really historic and incredible thing to see. And like there is today, there's a feeling in Hong Kong that you work hard, you play hard. So that was where I really got into wine. 
So it must have been an interesting and easier time to be there in Hong Kong as someone who's from Britain because you could probably get a visa easier, probably find somewhere to work easier. There was no visa requirement until after 97. So what you found was there were a lot of British journalists. They had the um, expression, failed in London, try Hong Kong. (laughs) You might remember that expression. I hadn't worked in London beforehand, I'd like to point out. But um, there was, it was a lot of really, there was so much to write about and so much happening. And I also did a lot of traveling. I worked for... um, a magazine called Sawadi, which was the Thai Airways in-flight magazine, in fact, but it was a beautiful magazine where we traveled a lot around Asia. So I was getting this incredible cultural insight into what was happening in Asia. And I feel very blessed that in my later career, now in, in Bordeaux, that I can connect those dots because really since 2000 and I guess, seven, eight, with the explosion of wine in Hong Kong and in mainland China, my experience from living there before has meant that I can come back to that part of my life, but with the knowledge of wine that I have now. I mean, I'm sure that was a big asset for your employers who said, oh, she covers Bordeaux. There's huge interest in Bordeaux from the Asian market where she's lived before. Absolutely. And I kept the um, contact with the South China Morning Post really ever since I left. And I now have a monthly column with them, as well as the work that I do for Decanter. So it's It's been fortunate and, yes, I think lucky for for both sides that I can do that. So what's it been like writing for two different audiences in that way? The fun thing is it keeps you fresh in terms of how you approach writing. The South China Morning Post is very much a general audience. It's a newspaper. Nobody there is really about the techie, geeky side of wine. Decanter obviously is a specialist audience. It's still consumer, but it's people who, who have invested enough to buy a wine magazine. So you can look a little bit more in depth in decanter. And where did the wine part come along for you? Two things. One, when I was very little, I was always really just interested in culture and travel, culture in the, in the sense of different cultures and travel. I can remember being six or seven years old and by my bed there was one of those globes that people have with the, that was a light. My aunt, um, who died when she was 32, so it was always kind of a mythical figure to me, but not somebody I knew very well. But when she was young, she went to Africa and she worked in voluntary service overseas. She got married to this wonderful guy, my uncle, who's from Chicago, who was doing the Peace Corps in Africa at the time. So I had this kind of romantic idea of traveling in my head from when I was very little. And I always imagined and dreamt of traveling, which I guess is why I went to Japan, why I went to Hong Kong. And wine, when you start to get to know wine and get to understand it, it really is all about you're still traveling, you're still experiencing different cultures through different bottles of wine, different producers. That's what really appealed to me. And I then, when I left Hong Kong, I went for a a three-month break in 1996 on my own to Africa. I was 24, I guess. And I I landed in um, South Africa and went up to the winelands. I really knew nothing about wine. I'd started to enjoy it. I was drinking mainly Italian wine at the time. But I landed in Cape Town. And this was two years after apartheid really had finished. It was really the early days of the new South Africa And I know that there's a lot of cynicism now, but if you take your mind back to the mid-1990s, it was a time of huge hope for South Africa. It was really exciting, and you felt the idea of the rainbow nation. You felt that things were really going to change. So I can remember very clearly going into the Winelands, and that was kind of old-fashioned. There were a lot of German descendants, of Dutch descendants, a lot of white people who owned properties there. And I went into a winery called Spear, which is in South Africa, and there was a black manager 
He was the first black manager employed by a South African winery. His name's Jabilani. He's South African. He was born in KwaZulu-Natal, but he'd lived in New York for most of the years of apartheid. He worked for Acker Merrill, and he, he'd worked in wine here. And when South Africa opened up, he wanted to go back and play his part. He wanted to go and help South Africa to, to rediscover what could happen. So he went and he, and he worked at Speer. So I was a young journalist getting to South Africa, and suddenly I saw this incredible story, really is what I can say it is, and this story which for me represented the romance of traveling, the savagery of the politics in South Africa, the beauty of the wines that I was tasting, and it was taking all of that was the first time that I guess I had that explosion moment. It wasn't necessarily the wine itself. It was what it represented to me at that time as a young journalist with the possibility of being in Africa on my own. It just, it was really something very special to me. And I, and I remember that as a real defining moment. So drawn to the culture, really, the it cultural context. The cultural context. And then when you realize how great it can taste as well, it, you know, it just, I think that Wine is a is a very unusual drink, as so many people have said before and will say again. It's something more than a beverage. That is something that, yeah, that is moving, really. But as an appendix, while I'm here in New York, I am meeting Jabalani. He um, lives in South Africa still, but he works between the two countries. So this has been 20 years, and I'm meeting him for the first time for coffee this week while I'm in New York. What do you think you're going to talk about? <laughs> I guess we're going to talk about the different paths that both of us have taken over the last 20 years. And I want to say thank you to him because really it was thanks to his, the spark that he set off in me that I started writing about wine. So what was the first attempts at that? I, when I went back to London after the handover, many people stayed. As I say, I've kept my links with Hong Kong, but I moved back to London and I started working in in journalism in London. I, I was managing editor of various websites. It was kind of the dot-com boom must have been interesting it was really wonderful i i was (laughs) the the websites still go today but now they're kind of focused on one thing at the time in the late 1990s every website had 12 different channels of content so i was managing editor of um of a property website but we had finance channels lifestyle channels um, you name it so i did quite a bit of wine stuff within that building your own wine cellar all, all of that and i started taking the wine spirit education trust exams so just getting more interested i have always had i went to an all-girls school i went went to a red brick english university i think i have always believed in education as well as self-learning so i was drinking more and getting more interested in in the good wines my now husband my then boyfriend has got a, a big bordeaux wine cellar he was one of those londoners who grew up with the the parents' wine cellar. And so he was drinking Bordeaux wine from being a teenager. So I started to get interested in that. And then I, I did the, the um, education classes to understand a bit more. But it really, I can honestly say that it was when I moved to Bordeaux that I dedicated myself full time to writing about wine. So until then, I'd been a journalist who was interested in wine. And from moving to Bordeaux, I became a wine writer. What was the impetus for Bordeaux in particular? I mean, it seems like there's a lot of places you could have gone. We had exactly that conversation. We looked at, we decided France because it's close to England and a lot of English people have that dream of living in France. So yeah, so we basically had a map of France and we thought, where can we go that's going to be nice to live and that I can write about? France is, 
um, now works as a negotiant. He sells wine. And that was kind of his dream to, to do husband. that. My husband, sorry. Yeah. So we decided in the end that Bordeaux is an hour's flight from London. There are flights every single day. So it was easy from a practical point of view. We just had our first daughter who was six months old when we moved. And um, I knew from a practical journalism point of view that Bordeaux is a place which fascinates people, has done for 2,000 years, will continue to fascinate people. And it's not there are many different angles of how you can go into Bordeaux. There's the politics. There's all of these things I talked about from South Africa. It might not be as intense in Bordeaux in terms of the, the apartheid. The, is it? Yeah, yeah, well, there's, there is some of that, I would guess. But it definitely, it has different ways in. So I, it interested me as a writer. So that was really why we picked Bordeaux. The Dutch were important in both, right? The Dutch were, yes, that's right. They got there in both. But I guess, I mean, like you said, Bordeaux could be covered a lot of different ways. So when you first got there, how did you think you were going to approach it? I think that I knew enough as a journalist to be able to approach Bordeaux. And I didn't know too much as a wine lover to be intimidated. Because now I look back and I think there's Hugh Johnson, there's at the time David Peppercorn, Stephen Spurrier... Um, obviously Robert Parker, there are so many really big name, important journalists who specialized in Bordeaux. And maybe I would have been a little more intimidated back in 2003. I've been there now for 14 years nearly. Had I thought a bit more about that, what I did was I approached it as a journalist. And I just thought there are stories to be told here, there are people to get to know. And that's how I'm going to approach it. So I, I went to Decanter very quickly after I'd moved, maybe two or three months after I'd moved there. And I said to them, I'm, I'm in Bordeaux, do you need anything? And they said, ah, this is a great time for you to walk into the office. We keep getting scooped by Wine Spectator on stories. So we need somebody who is happy to get their hands dirty and just get the stories and not just be writing reviews of the wines. And that suited me perfectly for the way in. And then after I'd been there a couple of years, when I was really focusing on that story's news, I then started taking classes in the Bordeaux School of Enology and learning a lot more about the tasting of the wine and obviously drinking more, visiting. And so it became quite a natural progression for me to go from, as I say, moving from being a journalist who wrote about wine to being a, a wine writer. But also an interesting time on the kind of wine writing landscape because you get there and you decide that maybe human stories are really interesting at a period of time when points seem to be on the wane. Like if you look back, you know, 2003, it's kind of the, the last days of the I points. would say 2003 was the, the high point of the craziness about points, maybe 2005 as well. And it's still one thing that is interesting about Bordeaux is there is a lag between how the rest of the world sees Bordeaux and how Bordeaux maybe sees itself. So the high point of points, end of the 90s, 2003, 2005, you have the Garage East wines on the right bank, all those wines which are really championed by Robert Parker, the big, broad-shouldered, lots of new oak, um, and the Bordelais were, were maybe resisting it a little, and then they got fully behind it, and just by the point the rest of the world was moving on a little bit away from that style, it took Bordeaux a while, there was definitely a time lag. And what I've found is really it's been since 2012 that you're starting to see in Bordeaux a much greater emphasis on freshness, on reducing that new oak. There's so many chateaus now, if you speak to them about the difference between their 9 and 10 wines and their 2015, which is also a superb vintage, 
great um, extractability of colours, really um, ripe tannins, uh, wines which have got all of the um, potential to be broad-shouldered, big fruit bombs, and yet you'll find a lot of chateaus have made the decision to not to not over-extract, to not go too far. There is a real feeling of heading back towards a more elegant style and being more aware of the stories behind trying to connect better with the consumer. So I think for myself, if I felt that my audience was at one point and had a point of view and that the people I was interviewing had a point of view that was at a, not quite the same place or even contratemps to that place, I, that might put me in a weird spot, especially if I lived in the area where I made my life there. I am always conscious of the fact that I live in a wine region. I know, as anyone does who visits a wine region, how much heart and soul goes into making wine, how important it is to the people who make it that their wine is judged well. But I have always found it quite easy to maintain a sense of distance. And I am sure that's because I was a journalist first. I came to it with a journalist mindset. I've never found it difficult to, to maintain a sense of, of balance and to, and to look at the wine from the point of view of, of what's, re- what's happening behind the glass. And again, I think that with what you historically might see is the Wayne of Parker who looked only in the glass, right? And said that, that that's only the part that mattered, that that might have been a re- kind of a refreshing moment for you to start doing that, whether you knew it or not. I think um, I was lucky in many ways in terms of when I came to Bordeaux. I was also there for the kind of revolution of when the Chinese arrived. I wrote the first story in 2008 about a Chinese woman who came and bought a property right down in the southern part of Entre-deux-Mer, a very beautiful vineyard, but in a very cheap area where the wine would have been sold maybe two euros per bottle, the complete opposite of our image of Bordeaux. She was the first woman from mainland China to buy a chateau. That's 2008. And now we're nearly 10 years later, and there are about 250 Chinese owners. So it's been very interesting for me to witness that, to be there at that time. And you're absolutely right. And also to see this change in the wine styles as we've gone from this big emphasis on ripe, 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 hang time, a style of wine which which is a lot about upfront pleasure. And then that we're heading back a little bit more to, not everywhere, but there are parts in Bordeaux and that's what I like to look at. I like to find the chateaus and the guys who are, are thinking about the soil, thinking about the terroir, and the things that maybe Bordeaux doesn't always does such a, a great job of communicating. I think we tend to think of Bordeaux, it's very easy to be cynical about Bordeaux, to dismiss a lot of Bordeaux as being all about big business. But it couldn't be further from the reality of, of what's happening. There are 97% of Bordeaux wine is sold for under 15 euros merchant price. And yet we talk so much about the headline wines, which are $200, $300 and upwards. And it's a shame how much of Bordeaux gets lost, I think, in that conversation. Approaching it as a business story has served you well, no? Approaching it as a breaking news where there's purchases and there's sales and there's ups and downs in the market. I mean, it, I feel like there's always new fresh content there. Agreed. I think one of the reasons that people get so into Bordeaux and get so excited about Bordeaux is that there's always something to fight about. There are a ton of things that you can geek out on about Bordeaux. So is it you're a left bank or you're, are you a right bank person? Are you a Cabernet? Are you a Merlot person? And then you drill right down and you say, okay, there's a special kind of sticky clay that you can find at Petrus. 
which is also in Latour, even parts of Lafon Rocher up in Santa Steph. So you can get as geeky as you want to in Bordeaux. There are always new things coming through, like the white wines in Bordeaux that for a long time were forgotten about. And really in the last five, ten years have just revolutionized what they're producing in the white wines there. So you have these aspects, which is about the wine, the taste, the terroir, the flavors. And then you're quite right. You also have the business side. If you're a collector and you're spending hundreds or thousands of dollars on wine, it's another level of interest that in fact you have LVMH owning, so Louis Vuitton, Moet Hennessy owning property there. You have some of the big insurance brokers and, and companies. It has that level that Napa has as well of serious money, serious interest, serious egos, all of that kind of drama Hollywood style. And at the same time, you have the smaller terroir-driven artisan producers. And it makes a tension in the region that maybe we don't talk about very much and maybe people don't always realize how much there is that tension in Bordeaux, but it makes it endlessly interesting. If you'd arrived in the 70s, you might have found it less, right? It seems to me like the idea of Bordeaux as an investment, that really kicked into high gear post-2000. You know, I mean, before, but... Yeah, I think um, from the 1980s onwards, obviously the famous 1982 vintage was the first one where people saw actual returns. When you speak to the winemakers who were producing in the 1970s, so I think of Jean-Michel Caz at Lynch Barge as a prime example, he will say the fascinating thing was in the 1970s, it was still dirt on the floor of most winery cellars. Um, they had to basically beg the negotiants to come up and taste the wine. Nobody ever went up to the chateaus to taste. They were stuck up in the Medoc and it felt like you know, hundreds of miles away from a civilization. It was so, so different. And they didn't have a lot of money. Um, when you, we today think about the classified wines, the 1855 classified wines, which are 61 chateaus, which, um, you know, the, the kind of the big guns today. In the 60s and the 70s, a lot of them had no money and were down to five hectares or 10 acres of, of vines left. Some of them nearly completely disappeared. You had um, wines like Claire Millon, which got to such tiny amounts of vineyards that they seriously thought, should we just pull them up and forget it? And then you fast forward 10 years to the 1980s when money is coming back in. One of the things that made a difference was that the French um, franc went through a couple of devaluations and it suddenly meant that there was an opportunity to come in and buy. That was at the same time you had Parker really bigging up the, the ability to buy these wonderful wines. And there was a convergence of different factors. And all of a sudden, the chateaus started getting money in for the first time. Since before World War II, there was serious sustained money coming in. And from that point, things changed. So today, negotiants are desperate for those, for those wines which they couldn't have given away in the 70s. Now there's much more. The chateaus are the ones who hold the cards. So you, you've always got that um, back and forth in Bordeaux. And that system, the chateau negociant system, goes right back to the mid-12th century. And how did that get going originally? It was the Brits. <laughs> it was, um, I'm afraid, <laughs> when mid-12th century, when the um, Duchess of, of Aquitaine married the guy who would become the King of England, and it became the Duchy of the English Crown. So 300 years, you had Bordeaux being a Duchy of England. Not in the same way, really, 
we talked about Hong Kong earlier. This was a real marriage of equals. She was a very wealthy woman. And the, the lands that she brought, of which Bordeaux was part of, had a huge impact, a huge money-making possibility for the English crown. So it was really a partnership that lasted about 300 years. But the actual system that Bordeaux wine is sold by today, where you have the chateaus making their wine and then the negociants selling overseas, and in between the two, you have a system of brokers who kind of check that the chateau is being fair and the negociants being fair. That system was set up over those 300 years, largely because you had chateaus who were speaking French and merchants who were speaking English or Dutch later, and you needed somebody in between to kind of check that everyone was being fair. And that was that system of brokers. So in the US, you have the three layers at your side. In Bordeaux, there are three layers just within Bordeaux itself, chateau, broker, negociant. So you've done multiple books where you were given the opportunity to hunt through archives of chateau. And I imagine you turned up some things that were historically interesting more than just anecdotes, but that may have played into setting the scene that we see today. Things in the past that really maybe 100, 200, 300 years, like you just said, kind of shaped the reality that we have now, whether at the time it seems so obvious or not. One of the um, interesting things about why Bordeaux is so famous, we think you talk to any wine drinker who is even a a casual wine drinker, you ask the top three wine regions in the world, they're likely to say Bordeaux, Burgundy, Napa is, it would usually be the three, maybe Champagne that people would pick. When you, you look at Bordeaux, the, one of the big reasons that it is so famous is this system that was set up a thousand years ago. And I'll just give you a very quick explanation of why. Up to this date, it was 1152, Bordeaux was a wine that was made locally and consumed locally. That is true of most wine regions around the world still today. From that point, Bordeaux became made locally for an overseas audience. It was being made for the wealthy, first in London and then in um, wherever, wherever it would be. One of the things I love about Bordeaux from this historical point of view is you can trace the important economic powerhouses of the world purely through who is drinking the great wines of Bordeaux. So you can see when England kind of took a shoot down and all of a sudden the Dutch come in because they were the biggest economic um, um, superpower in the 16th century, then they head off. You have the Americans who come in really in the 19th century and the 20th century become very important. 80s, the Japanese, suddenly very important. Today, the Chinese. And they all, you can just trace a line through the guys who are buying Lafitte, Mouton, Margot, these um, 1855 first growths. And that is something incredible. And when I started looking into their archives, my first book that I wrote on my own, it was a book called Bordeaux Legends. And I took those five first growths and I asked myself, how did these five chateaus become the first growths? Today, we just think it's a given. That's what they are. But I wanted to know why? Why was it these guys and, and not somebody else? And it, each one of them had done their own books about their own history, but nobody had put them together. And among the many fascinating things I found in their archives was that the same names kept coming up as being the owners of those properties. For two years, from 1718 to 1720, there were just two families that owned all five of them. Today, they all have five different owners, but you had for many, many, many centuries, 
you had two owners that owned four of them. Basically, Margot and Obreon were linked for many centuries, and Latour and Lafitte were linked for many centuries back in the in the 17th and 18th century. And then Mouton was always a little bit different, which again explains potentially why Mouton was promoted in 1973 to be first growth, but wasn't in 1855. It has a slightly different history. And when you start putting all these things together, it's just a really enriching way of looking at them. Were there disasters, either ecological or viticultural or financial disasters that happened in the past that have had ramifications later? Yes. And um, when the Chinese bubble burst and there's a lot of panic, there was certainly panic in Bordeaux about the implications of that. A lot of people who had put a lot of things into one basket kind of maybe regretted that. But when you look back at the history of Bordeaux, it it is boom and bust. That is the history of Bordeaux from the beginning, right back to when the British were kicked out in um, in the mid-15th century. There was a serious economic vacuum there because most of that wine had been going to the English market and it was no longer able to. So they had to regroup. It took about 50 years for them to do so. And then you had the big phylloxera crises, all of these big economic crises in the 19th century. So early 19th century, everybody's happy, making a load of money. Bordeaux suddenly becoming one of the big, renowned international regions. And then you have a triple whammy of vineyard diseases, the last one of which phylloxera came obviously from the States and really decimated not just Bordeaux, but many, many parts of France, many parts of Europe. What came on the back of that was a lot of forgery I have a wonderful book that I found in an archive, which was written around 1896, which gives recipes for how to make these great wines. So there's a recipe for how to make a Lafitte, a recipe for how to make, in fact, some wonderful burgundies as well. They were written by professors. They weren't illegal books. They were official books written by the professors in Beaune and in Bordeaux about how to try and recreate your favorite wine, which has been destroyed by phylloxera. So there's really, there's a whole, a whole history of disasters throughout Bordeaux. You have both of the world wars. Second World War particularly was a serious, serious time of huge damage for, for Bordeaux economically, where for many years after World War II, people weren't bottling under vintage names because they just didn't have enough crop coming in. So they would be putting several vintages together and selling generic names. That's true even for the first growth, even for the very, very prestigious wines in Bordeaux had a very difficult time during the wars. So yes, the oil crisis in the 70s, you name it, it's a boom-bust cycle. So are we in a boom cycle or a bust cycle now for Bordeaux? Bordeaux right now is in a very interesting time where a lot of things are changing. Things are shifting. And there's, again, this idea of tension between maybe what the chateaus are looking for and what the merchants and consumers are looking for. Since 2008, with the financial crisis, Bordeaux got really lucky, really lucky, because the Chinese came in just at the time that the financial market took the bottom out of the US market. They would have been exposed much more quickly to the realities of the new economy if it wasn't for the fact that the Chinese came in and cushioned them. And that had to do with tax changes. That had to do with particularly in 2008, Hong Kong removing all, all taxes. So do you think then that that was on purpose? 
that someone in a Chinese government said, "Oh, now would be a good time to do this." I'm serious. <laughs> That's a great it's, question. It's it a great seem question. Like it's, uh, I, it seems like one to the other. Like I one. just last week, in fact, was um, reading um, in the light of Brexit. I'm very, very interested in all kinds of wine systems and the impact that law change has on them, because people who say that Brexit will have no impact over the long time are missing how many times political decisions have had an enormous impact on the wine business. So one of them, I talked about the devaluation of the franc in the 80s, which was by Mitterrand, by the French prime minister. It had a huge impact on bringing the states into the Bordeaux market. The 2008 Hong Kong abolition of tax had a huge impact on bringing Hong Kong and then via Hong Kong, the Chinese, into the Bordeaux market. So we will see what happens now. But history tells us that political decisions do have an impact on, on what we drink. Whether the Chinese did it, I would say no. I would say no, because I, I've been, as I say, just reading a lot of the lobbying that went up. And the lobbying began in the mid-1990s. They used to have tax at 100% in Hong Kong. It came down to 60% in, I think, 1998, then down to 50%. So it had been gradually coming down. And I think they got super lucky to do it at exactly the right time to pick up the slack from the U.S. So what's that look like on the ground? I mean, you said it's been about 200 chateau purchases from the Chinese. How is that received and what does it really look like? I understand what the stereotype is, but what's the reality? Well, I can tell you as an English person, one of the things I love is you can now get tea in the chateaus. Up until that point... It was coffee all the way. I've been to chateaus where I've asked for a cup of tea and they give me hot water from a tap with a little tea bag in. I can happy to say those days are pretty much over. So that's a, that's a positive thing from my point. Um, I think people get um, overly concerned about the long-term implications. I always go back to the history of Bordeaux. This is what Bordeaux does. Bordeaux welcomes is a business town it welcomes people who are happy to invest and if we again go back to why is Bordeaux so famous it's very 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 lucky to have this wonderful climate to have these great soils it spent many millennia working out the best um, blends the best varieties to grow there but it also has benefited from being a port town from being open to the world and what happens in Bordeaux with this system of chateau broker negociant is that the negotiants take that wine around the world and they talk about it in every market. I went on a safari in Kenya and we stayed at this little lodge. It was, I was, didn't have a lot of money. I probably paid the lowest possible thing you could. So this lodge was not a luxury lodge. We sat down to eat and the wine was a Mouton Cadet. Bordeaux, it really is like the Manchester United of wine. Wherever you go, somebody's got a Man United t-shirt on, Bordeaux has that impact that it has managed to infiltrate so many different cultures and so many different places around the world. And that is due to this system that I'm talking about. But when we came, the Americans in the 80s, I feel like we changed the palate of Bordeaux. The wines were fruitier and deeper and darker and oakier after we got there than before. The Americans as a whole, it came together at the same time. What we can forget is that Bordeaux has one of the greatest wine universities in the world. Just like UC Davis, there's a, it's now called the ISVV, the Institute of Vines and Wine, based in Bordeaux. And we have had really important 
guys like Emile Peno in the mid-20th century, Denis de Bourdieu until he very, very sadly died a few months ago, these legendary enologists who also were doing this pushing trying to work out how to make better wine. And Emil Peno, right back in the 1960s, his big point was, you've got to make it ripe. It's got to be ripe. For many, many, many years, Bordeaux would pick at the same rough time every year because that's what they did. And the hunting season started afterwards. They'd all go out basically bird hunting. This was true until the 60s and the 70s. And so the tastes that you were getting were seen as being normal, and um, Cabernet Sauvignon particularly has a molecule in it called pyrazine, which is like a green, a green taste. That uh, unripe taste is a better way to express it. Well, and that's for, how Pinot expressed it. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah. don't know. I, you know. And for many, many, many years, people thought that's what Bordeaux tasted like. I don't know if this is true or not, but I have been told that when South Africa opened to the world and was looking to have an international style of wine, they sometimes added pyrazine to their Cabernet Sauvignon to give it what they thought was a classic Bordeaux taste. I think that's yeah. true, but they call it Pinotage there. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other... But that's something I've not yet managed to get to grip with, Pinotage, that's for sure. Right, so um, that's for, so for a long time, that's what people thought. That's what Cabernet Sauvignon should taste like. Parker very rightly came along and said, actually, when Cabernet Sauvignon is ripe, it is blackcurrant, it's cassis, it's, it's got these wonderful floral tones. It's a beautiful, nuanced and deep grape. He was really coming at the same time that, that was really being publicized and talked about from the Bordeaux School of Enology. What's interesting today, and this isn't about Parker, he was part of a movement to this school of ripeness, which was absolutely the right thing to do. But physiologically, in the grape, things can go too far. And I strongly believe it's inarguable that a grape, if it gets overripe, begins to oxidize on the vine. And when a grape goes so ripe that it begins to oxidize, then you start getting those fig flavors, you start getting those kind of dried fruit flavors. There is no doubt that the integrity of that grape has started to break down a little and it won't age as well. So it's all about getting the balance right. And Bordeaux kind of took the ball, took the Parker ball, the ripeness ball, and ran with it. Less so on the left bank, because Cabernet Sauvignon in the climate of Bordeaux will never get overripe. It's incredibly tough to do that. But on the right bank, where you have clay soils and you have Merlot, which is a, a, a more easy grape to ripen, but a much more dangerous grape to overripen, that has happened. And we talked about Emil Penno. You can read him in the 60s and the 70s saying very clearly, you need to make sure a grape ripens. What Denis de Bourdieu said quite clearly in more recent years was the big concern for Bordeaux now is not about getting it ripe, it's getting it too ripe. So that conversation has shifted from a point of view of the enology of what's happening in Bordeaux to try and rein it back. You'll find in many vintages, and this is something that I find frustrating for me, with the right bank particularly, is just how much, so many chateaus still go for hang time, hang time, hang time, leave it on. This year, 2016, is a beautiful vintage in Bordeaux. So, so lucky in terms of being able to pick when you want to. The risk can be, if you give people enough rope, they hang themselves. So if it's ripe enough, they leave it, leave it, leave it. So that's, it's a big discussion and debate right now in Bordeaux. And I know what side of the debate I'm on. 
That doesn't mean I want them to be underripe. That is completely incorrect. It's that I want there to be integrity and freshness. As the Bordelais were running with the ripeness ball, were the goalposts changing due to climate change at the same time period? This is a brilliant point that can get forgotten about, that when Emil Penno was saying you've got to ripen, it was talking about very different conditions where it, you couldn't guarantee that. So a lot of people would be picking because they were scared, they were nervous of waiting in case it rained. So he was saying to them, look, but you've got to be a bit braver. You've got to hang on. You've got to let, those, let that pyrazine fall, let the grape ripen. The conversation is different now because much more regularly you have those high temperatures. A simple way to look at that is alcohols. Average alcohol in 1982, that wonderful vintage, which I was super lucky recently to taste a number of 1982s just like last week, they were 12.5% average. If you look at 2009, your average alcohol is 14, 14.5%. That is partly to do with hang time, how long we're leaving it to ripen, but it's also to do with the average temperatures that are that are happening in, in Bordeaux. So you're dealing with different parameters and you, you know, winemakers need to adjust to those parameters. So in that adjustment time, and you seem to imply that there's a level of conversation and flux around that issue and maybe some others at this time in Bordeaux itself, are we going to see a native Chinese speaker come in and do what Parker did? In other words, publicize and bring to a broader audience one aspect of the conversation and make it more of a commercial reality? We will see. I think it's impossible to say no. I think that... Um, as any market becomes more important, then they absolutely should and must and will have people, have, have journalists, have influencers, I guess is, is the right word, from that market to come and talk about the wines. That, that is already happening. But Parker was at a very unusual time. Certainly what we're seeing now is more, more voices, different voices. What Parker didn't have to contend with as well is social media and the fact that so many people who, who are just interested in wine and passionate about wines themselves become influencers without having to pass through the gatekeeper. This is a great thing. Wine generally is in flux right now. What you're finding in Bordeaux is that there are different conversations going on around that. But I have no doubt that in the next five, 10 years, there will be new, powerful voices coming out of China. Speaking about online, and it's funny that you had some history with online before, because when I look at Decanter today, it seems to me Maybe I'm reading this wrong. Like you get more billing on the email and online side than you do in the magazine where yeah. there's more voices that are maybe some more of the traditional voices that have been there for a long time who get equal billing with you in the publication. But when it comes to the email that I receive, I see your name all the time, yeah. which is part of the reason I read your writing. Are the editors at Decanter thinking that your writing is a little bit more online friendly or? It's, it's a great question. Well, I know that Decanter, like many, many media outlets, have to see now the magazine as being the base of the brand, but, but not, not the be-all and end-all. What all media has to do now is find other ways to go out to meet people and to talk to people and to connect with readers. And online clearly is important. We get way more visitors to our website than we do to the magazine, but we wouldn't have the power of the website without having the magazine and going on to doing the Decantifying Wine Awards and all of these other many things. Um, I hope that they're choosing me for online because they think I, I speak to people in a more, a, a, you know, a, a less traditional manner because that's certainly what I try to do. But they, you would have to ask them if that's why. But do but, you suspect that you're... I think that 
to write for online, you have to be fluid. I think, again, my journalism and my news background helps hugely because I'm doing a weekly column, as is Andrew. You've got to be quick and, and rapid to do that. So I, I'm not sure that they're specifically putting me on there to speak to a new kind of audience, but I think the way I write suits the online. So I'm, I'm not sure which one came first. You know, you referenced the fact that there's ongoing conversations in the region, and it sounded to me like you were saying that there was different conversations in different parts of the broader Bordeaux region, and that also maybe where someone is already in the market has a lot to do with their viewpoint on what that conversation or conversations might be. So maybe we could take it geographically, and you could tell me some of what's happening to your mind in like an area like Pomerol, what's been going on over the, the period of time that you've been in Bordeaux? What's happening there today? What's unique to the conversation in Pomerol? Pomerol has always been at the forefront of this idea of Burgundy in Bordeaux, of being a small mindset in terms of artisan mindset, because just necessarily the size of the estates there are much smaller Let's just go globally to Bordeaux. One of the main differences, left bank to right bank, is that the right bank and Grave have always been making wine forever. You know, 2,000 years, you've had producers there. What that means is that a lot of the estates are owned by families and they're quite small. So that is where you get a lot of the experimentation out in the vineyard particularly. The Medoc is probably what we see outside the King of Cabernet, the most prestigious. But as a wine entity, it's only been there for 200, 300 years because it was marshland until the Dutch came and drained the marsh. So there you have much bigger estates, much more stately homes kind of things for their chateaus. And that in itself tells you a lot about the history and about the difference of what you're going to find. So what's really um, interesting about the Medoc particularly is the chateaus that you see there, they're the ones that you get on the, on the labels of, of your bottle. They're the kind of fantasies of these big, wealthy merchants or aristocrats or people who'd made their money in railways or whatever and came in the 18th century and they built the chateaus as they see them. What you're finding today in the Medoc is everything's moved to the winery now in the Medoc. There's an awful lot of stuff happening in the winery. This really happened in the 80s and the 90s. This move towards new oak, this move towards controlling the temperature, working out what difference vinifying at different temperatures makes to the final wine. Those years, particularly 80s, 90s and 2000, I would say, were the years of the winery. So you've got all these new wineries being built. You've got the star architects coming today and building really quite stunning huge um, kind of cathedrals to wine. That's true on the right bank as well. But what we're seeing now, and for me, this is a very necessary next step, is to head back out to the vineyard. It's what we're finding now is people are heading back out. There's a realization that if you just look at how a wine is made in the winery, you're really missing out on the single most important step, which is what the grapes are like, what's happening out in the vineyard. So there is a shift back. And what always happens is that starts in the right bank because these are smaller properties. So Pomerol is a great example of that. Pomerol is, for me, still one of the most exciting parts of Bordeaux to go to really understand terroir, to really understand what to do in the vineyard to make your wine taste good in the glass. There's a producer in Pomerol who I really appreciate who's called Edward Labruyere. He's um, a guy who is actually from, from Burgundy. And he owns a property in Burgundy, he owns property in Pomerol, Chateau Rouget, and he owns a property in Champagne. And he is starting to do an awful lot of work on different terroirs to try and split up his 
harvest and to work out what different plots of the vineyard, what they taste like. It's quite difficult within the rules of Bordeaux to then bottle it differently because the rules of Bordeaux is it's a blended wine. But he is part of this new generation of people who are saying it's not enough to just go on our brand name. We need to look at the terroir. We need to look at how to really, really separate different parts of our vineyard from each other. Um, Bordeaux has done that, obviously, with second wines for many, many years. You have the first wine and the second wine and sometimes the third wine. But there is a shift towards going a little bit further. If I give you some examples up in the Medoc, this is also happening in the Medoc, is there are properties like Chateau Claire Milon, which is up in Poyac, which has done an awful lot of work to improve the plots in the vineyard that are being used to make the wine. Chateau Pedersglow as well, also in Poyac, a really interesting property to look at what they're doing in the vineyard. They have identified more interesting, better quality plots around Poyac and bought them and are putting them into the vineyard. So Pedersglow is a great example. Ten years ago, there were some plots that it was making good wine, but not great wine. Really, since 2012, you're seeing huge improvement in Pedersglow because they have identified better plots, they've worked out the right kind of grape in the plots and putting it into the wine. These things are happening in Bordeaux in a much more serious and sustained way than has been happening for, for, many, for many years. Because sometimes when I talk to Bordelais and sometimes they're defining ripeness as better in a certain plot, like this is the good plot. And that's because it's riper. I guess that takes us back to that previous conversation. But is there more quantifiers of why a, a particular plot would be good than it makes riper wine? I guess that is, again, them thinking in the way they maybe would have thought 20, 30 years ago. There's always the worry in Bordeaux that you'll get frost early in the, in the year because we're in the southern part of France, but it's right by the Atlantic coast. You have risk of not great weather. So for many years, they would have put Cabernet Sauvignon in the part of the vineyard where it was less likely to frost because it will be a later ripener. So it would be budding later in the year, therefore it would miss the window of, of frost. But what they realized was that means that was the cooler part of the vineyard, which was budding later, but it also meant it was never getting ripe. So until the mindset changed, maybe they would have tried to fix that in the cellar. If you've got a grape which is maybe a little bit thin, it needs a bit more ripeness, what can I do in the cellar to fatten that up? There is a realization now that, that that conversation has to happen much, much earlier. It has to happen with where you are in the vineyard. So there are a couple of guys in Bordeaux. One of them I can think of is a terroir export called Xavier Chonet. Xavier Chonet works now in Napa. He works in Argentina. He works all over the world. But he's a, an expert in terroir and you name it, all of the big chateaus now have got their terroir map. They've done huge geological studies and they're looking at where do I plant the grapes where they're really going to ripen. So that you take some of the chance out of ripening because you're really thinking what's happening in the soil, what's happening in terms of the delivery of water to these different plots, which is a, a huge part of ripening grapes, to allow the focus to head back to the vineyard. Cheval Blanc is a, a wonderful property over on the right bank in Saint-Emilion where there is a very, very precise work going on about exactly this. And what they do at Cheval Blanc is that they will harvest the inside of the plot earlier than the outside of the plot. So they're really starting to, it's not just about which plot harvest ripe first, but it's about which part of the plot will ripen first. So this conversation is, is ongoing. And again, we can be cynical about the prices of Bordeaux wine, but 
it is allowing a lot of these conversations to happen because there is a realization that if you're charging such a frequently crazy amount of money for a bottle of wine, the margin of error has to be taken away. So there's a lot of work going into really trying to control every step to make that wine better, which I would say brings us to a whole other question is wine can be too perfect. You know, that we, we looked at these 1982s that I tasted last week. There was no sorting being done then at the same, you know, some of those grapes would have definitely been ripe. Some would have been unripe. Some would have been blocked because it was such a hot summer. So the pursuit of perfection is not in itself necessarily the best thing, but that is, that is the conversation that's happening right now. I guess for me, when a wine becomes more consistent, it also becomes a little more boring. Yep. Yep. And in fact, today, if you taste Santa Steph, San Julian, Poyac, there is often much less of a difference between them than there would have been 15 or 20 years ago. And that is a loss. That's a, that's a great shame. This is why I champion and really look for those wines which don't mask terroir. My main problem, there are... New oak can be seen as being a big bad wolf, and that's crazy. Chateau Ozone in Saint-Emilion has 100% new oak, and nobody can say that's not one of the most elegant, beautiful, wonderfully balanced wines in the world. There's no question about that. But the terroir there allows, it, it gives a natural power to the wine. The concern, if you use a lot of new oak in a terroir which is maybe less powerful or less nuanced, is that it drowns out the conversation that the wine wants to have with you. Every time you take a sip of a wine, what I try and keep in mind is you're having a conversation with that wine. It's trying to tell you something. And all of the things that you put like a veil between you and the terroir is drowning out that conversation. And so if you let your wine, your grape, go over ripe, then that is one of the ways to drown out that conversation. If you get it into the cellar and you put too much new oak and your terroir doesn't merit it or doesn't suit it then you are again drowning out that conversation so what i see for the good guys in bordeaux i.e the guys who i respect in terms of what they're doing it is to bring the conversation back to terroir and the biggest mistake as far as i can see that bordeaux has made in the last 20 30 years is to give up that conversation and to allow people to look at bordeaux and say it's about money it's about consistency of brand it's about bling when really the great wonderful bordeaux are nuanced wines that can age for 40 50 wines and they tell you about the time it was bottled the person who made it all of these wonderful things that wine can tell us and for me i am thrilled to see that conversation coming back into bordeaux just to loop back a little bit i mean you just mentioned ozone but what are some of the conversations happening in santa million as a place that are contemporary conversations that maybe you saw evolve over time santa million is the most frustrating and potentially beautiful of all parts of bordeaux wine because they again have let the conversation stop being about the wine they have let the conversation be about politics in a lot of ways santa million has a ranking system but unlike 1855, they redo it every 10 years. I recently did a book for Angelus. And as part of that process of researching for that book, I went back to look at the beginnings of the Santamillion classification and why they did it. Obviously, partly they did it because they knew that 1855 had been such a great marketing campaign, a marketing tool for the wines of the Medoc. And they, they wanted some similar thing, which is fully understandable. But 
they originally also wanted to make it an egalitarian classification, which would be helpful to the consumer, which would be a genuine reflection of which wines were best at that time. So when they wrote the first classification, you could have wines being promoted, wines being demoted, and it would be redone every 10 years. And the intention was noble. The intention was to help consumers get the best wine that was available and to also help the producers to feel that if they worked hard, if they invested, that they would get a reward for that. In um, 1855, over on the left bank in the Medoc, one of the frustrations can be that if you're a fifth growth, you're never going to be a first growth, no matter how much you invest. In fact, the market will make up its own mind. So it's not such a big deal. But how they saw it in Santamillion was they wanted to write that wrong and to every 10 years to say, okay, guys, where are we? Who's doing well? Who's not doing so well? But what has happened, certainly since the 1990s, is that it becomes a big fight, a real bitch fight. I mean, it's unbelievable. It really is small village mentality. And if somebody gets demoted, they immediately call in the lawyers. If somebody gets promoted, there is jealousy and there is, I don't know, really a feeling of, oh, why did they get it and I didn't get it? And it takes away, there is no doubt about it, from the conversation that we should be having, which is that these are wonderful wines that are grown mainly on limestone. They have this, this ability to age. They have this nuance. They have all of these wonderful things that can, that's so great about Santamillion. And yet it can be drowned out by this kind of small town mentality of, well, he doesn't deserve to be Premier Grand Cru Class AA, so I'm, I'm going to try and bring down the whole classification. So that is a frustration for me about Santamillion, and I'm sure I'm not the only person to, to feel like that. The other thing that's really fascinating about Santamillion is it is the coalface of this question of wine styles. Because it was so adopted by, again, I... I Parker becomes a shorthand for so many things, and it's so unfair on Parker, who absolutely champions lots of wonderful nuanced wines and, and always wines that he loves. But the fact is, this idea of a garage yeast wines, the idea of wines which hadn't necessarily shown their over years how they could age and yet got great high points for being a certain style, the right bank, Santamon in particular, was the epicenter of that. So as we're now seeing a global move, this is not just in Bordeaux, a global move towards slightly more fresh, balanced, elegant wines, then this is another one of the fights that's happening in Bordeaux. I love going to Santamillion at harvest time because you will have some guys like Cheval Blanc, for example, which will have finished picking before some other guys will have even got the first grape off the vine. It's a place where personality and stylistic intent what you want your wine to taste like is very much still in play less so than it would have been 10 years ago where everybody was all about getting a particular style but it's a fascinating place to go to to see that that is still a very active conversation how long should I wait in a way that you get when you go to Napa as well there's a there's still less than there was but there is still how many bricks can I get you know how high can I go or all of this kind of thing that that still happens in Santamillion as well so it must be a very different picture on some of the satellite appellations of the right bank like Cote de Castillon, Franzac. Franzac is long overdue I would say a renaissance so there's a lot of exciting stuff happening in Franzac. you have some really exciting winemakers 
who are doing a lot of the things that Santamillion was maybe doing in the 80s and 90s of focusing hugely on what to do in the vineyard to make the wine taste better in the glass. And these small guys in Fronzac, one of the reasons is because land is less expensive there. So you can have a lot of young winemakers who can go into Fronzac and who can buy the properties or they can take over from their parents. In France, there are huge um, taxes to be paid to head from one generation to another. And that can be really difficult in places like Poyac, in places like Saint-Emilion, because one hectare, which is two and a half acres of vines, can go up to two million euros. You know, these are expensive, expensive plots of land. So you have a real pressure to sell if you're a small independent winemaker and you can't keep going. It's why in Poyac today there are four independent producers who are not, you know, not the big guys. In San Julian, there is one, maybe two small independent producers. The land is just worth too much to allow that to be sustainable. Whereas in the satellites, in Fronzac, in Castillon, you do have um, small independent producers still. Santamillion as well in, in certain parts of it. But um, so there is a feeling of, of excitement. There's a feeling of trying to push boundaries a little bit further. And um, as again, as prices of some of the classified wines go higher, then Fronzac and Castillon particularly are two appellations that are really worth exploring to find these nuanced exciting, vibrant wines. I like a wine which feels alive in the glass. I like a wine where acidity is the wrong word. It's freshness. It's a sense of of a wine which is going somewhere, which takes hold of your palate and pulls it forward with you. And you can feel the excitement and the vibrancy in that wine. And you're finding some wonderful wines there in those smaller appellations. So you mentioned Entre de Mer as a place where there was initial Chinese investment. And you also mentioned a resurgence in white wine for Bordeaux as a region. So what's happening in Entre de Mer? Entre de Mer, so it's a white wine only appellation. You can make red wine there, but it would be bottled under the Bordeaux Superior or Bordeaux appellation. Entre de Mer is still lagging behind. To be honest, it still has a long way to go to capitalize on the potential that Bordeaux white wine has. I would say still most sommeliers don't really think of stocking a Bordeaux white wine and most drinkers. It's only 11% of the whole of Bordeaux production white wine. Go back 50 years, it was kind of even red and white, which is something that you know is, is, is not really even thought about today. The guy who changed everything for Bordeaux white wines is Denis de Bordeaux. We mentioned him before, a professor at the um, a School of Enology. When I moved to Bordeaux, the single biggest step change for me in terms of really understanding how to taste, how to, how to make sense of these 8,000 chateaus that you have around you in Bordeaux was through the School of Enology. So I learned to taste with um, Jean-Claude Berroway, who is a winemaker at Petrus, an incredible, incredible, generous and wonderful man. Um, I learned with Denis de Bordeaux. And they were very kind to me when I moved to Bordeaux. And in the way that most wine people are, they're generous, they want to share, they love the product and they want to share with people who are interested and, and want to learn. One of the things that I'm sure we all love about wine. And um, Denis de Bordier came from a sweet wine background. His family have owned a property in Barsac, which is next to Sauterne, for many, many um, hundreds of years. And when he was learning, when he was becoming a professor, he started studying how to 
capture the the aromatics in noble rot, which is the the process by which the sweet wines of Bordeaux are made. He then went on to look at premature oxidation, how to how to minimise the risk of white wines breaking down earlier than we would like them to, which you know has been a, a big concern in Burgundy and in many other parts of the world. He developed a lot of yeasts as well. He was a researcher into different yeast strains and looked at specific types of yeast that might improve the aromatics in a Sauvignon Blanc. All of these very precise research topics. But where he was different was that he also made his own wine and he also was a consultant. So he went out and he published his papers and made sure that winemakers around Bordeaux understood, got them and could read them and could act on them. And he consulted with many different estates. So he was incredibly important to change the idea of Bordeaux white wine, to change the possibility of Bordeaux white wine. If I was spending five euros, I would be much more certain of getting a good wine if I went white than red. Because at that level of investment, you think 8,000 chateaus across the region, five euros consumer price is coming out of the chateau at one or two euros, and it's not a lot. Or a red wine, there's variation still. With a white wine, because of all the work that's been done, there is a real feeling of you make the white wine if you want to make it. You make a white wine if you've got a market. You make the white wine if you know what you're, what you're doing. Because, as I say, 11% of, of Bordeaux is white, 2 or 3% of that is sweet. So you're left with a small amount of dry white wine. And the guys who are doing it are making some, some great things. In fact, just before I came here, I bumped into a, a Bordeaux chateau owner who's called Alexandre de Bertman, who owns Chateau Olivier, which is in Pessac Leonian, one of the most exciting appellations, I think, for Bordeaux at the moment. Again, very close to the city. A lot of young, new investment has come into Pessac Leonian. Chateau Olivier has been in the de Bertman family for many generations, but he himself has come on fairly recently. The winemaker called Lauren Lebrun is from Sancerre, he's from the Loire. So he has brought a kind of new sensibility to making the white wine there. And that's one of the very exciting properties for white wine. Denis de Bordia himself has Clos Floridan, his own property, which he created from scratch as a white wine property in the 1980s. That is, again, it shows what can be done. I think that there will be, there is already, but there will be a greater reappraisal of the longevity of Bordeaux white wines and just the potential for the pleasure that, that you can get for them. So you spoke already about Pessac Lagnon whites, but what about reds and the Grave? Historically, the Grave was where it was all at. Um, when, if you were buying Bordeaux wine in the 18th century, you would ask for a Grave wine as being the, the best, the top of the tree. They got really sucker-punched by Pessac Lyonian in the mid-1980s. Pessac Lyonian is, is, is a recent creation. It wasn't an appellation until 1987. The whole of that region to the south of the city of Bordeaux was called the Grave. Grave is one of only two appellations in the whole of France that is named after its soil. So Grave means gravel in French, and it comes from the fact that it's very gravelly soil. So this was kind of seen as the big deal, the great part of Bordeaux. First thing that really messed them up was that the Medoc came along and all of a sudden the Medoc had better gravel because the gravel there was a little bit bigger, which meant that the sun could be captured a little bit easier in the Medoc. The grapes would get riper. More ripe means more sugar. More sugar means more alcohol, all of that. So the Medoc really took over as being the most exciting part of Bordeaux. Grave was still making great wine, but 
what you found was there was a cluster in Grave of the best chateaus in the northern part. In 1987, Andre Lawton, who was one of the um, producers who still with us, he's I think he's 88, 89 now, he lobbied to get a new appellation for this northern section of the Grave. And he was successful, and that became Pesac Leonian. So Pesac Leonian is that's a um, a joining together of two of the communes, one Pesac, one Leonian, are two of the villages basically in that part of Bordeaux. And it's where you get the best quality, longest living red and white wines in the whole of the Grave. And it's been wonderful for them, but the rest of the Grave has maybe been forgotten a little bit as a consequence. Like Entre de Mer, there's a marketing job still to be done with the Grave. They have the benefit of having the history and they were once seen as being the big deal, but they've got a lot of catching up to do. A subregion where it seems like everybody's really happy with it, at least in the market, is Margot, where there doesn't seem to be some of the baggage that we've talked about in some of the other regions, or am I wrong? Well, you're wrong in that the style of Margot is quite different. So because it's so big, so in the Medoc you have seven different appellations, seven different names you can see on your wine label. Um, Margot is the biggest of them. So out of um, Saint-Julien, Saint-Estephe, uh, Poyac, um, Moulis, Listrac, and Margot, Margot is quite significantly bigger. So you have a big stylistic change across the region. So what you tend to find is in certain, in many vintages, Margot has some of the best wines of the Medoc and some of the worst wines of the Medoc. So it can suffer from from that point of view. It's been very lucky recently. 2015 was exceptionally good in Margot, and there was great consistency. So put that together with the name Margot. Margot also benefits from the fact that its first growth, Chateau Margot, has the same name as the Appalachian, so that gives great recognition globally. It's a wine which has benefited from that name recognition for many years. But when you buy Bordeaux wine and drink Bordeaux wine, it is far less consistent than Saint-Julien, I would say. So if I was going to say which of the Medoc appellations is the most consistent for quality, it is almost certainly Saint-Julien, because there you have a very homogenous gravel soil. It's about 88% Cabernet Sauvignon planted in Saint-Julien. It's a very homogenous soil, and you have a lot of big classified estates who have the money and the investment. So although it's not an inexpensive appellation, it is very consistent in terms of what you're getting. One of the exciting things about Margot is of all of these big, famous Medoc appellations, it is the one where you can still find small individual producers because it's so big. So you can still hunt out small producers doing something exciting. Something we haven't talked about yet, which is really a big deal again across left and right bank, is the move towards organic, the move towards biodynamic. Bordeaux is a big region, as we say, 8,000 chateaus. There's um, the problem of the Atlantic Ocean. There's the problem of rain, 750 millimeters per year on average. You have a problem with rot. So historically, that has meant a lot of treatment, a lot of vineyard treatments. There has been in the last year in France, two TV documentaries made which caused a huge, huge stink about the problems, the, the health risks involved with treating vines. And it has been all for the good. I'm sure they were really pissed about it. And it's unfortunate in a way. Bordeaux uses more um, treatments than other regions, but it's also much bigger. So I'm sure they don't per capita, per, you know, per vine. But when you look at it in black and white, it looks pretty damning. 
it has caused a really worthwhile and important conversation happening in the region that was already happening, but it's become more public of how to shift. And you have leading chateaus like Ponte Cane, like Palma, that have very publicly talked about the importance of biodynamics to them. And it has helped that critics have received their wines very well. You can see the benefit. You can see the line of energy again, which goes through from the vineyard into the glass. And this is something which is now, thank goodness, being embraced by more and more producers, left and right bank. The idea of of either using organics or biodynamics or simply using much more sustainable methods. There's a use of drones to check um, what needs treating around the vineyard, so you only um, apply the treatments where it's needed. Chateau Latour is one of the leading proponents of that, the kind of precision agriculture. And and this is this will get bigger and bigger over the next decade. So you mentioned Latour. What about Pauillac? I mean, I think you've spent a lot of time there. Your first book, Bordeaux Legends, included several producers in the Pauillac zone that you searched through the archives. So what should I know about Pauillac today that I may not know already? If we bring it to economics just for one moment, if you're being given an inheritance and you're wanting to buy a piece of land, if you go to Entre de Mer, you could probably buy two and a half acres for 10,000 euros, maybe 15,000 euros. You go to Pauillac, 1 million, 2 million euros. So right there, you can see one of the major benefits and problems for Poyak. Benefit, they have money to invest in their vineyards. There is not a vineyard in Poyak that hasn't been spruced up, that hasn't had a new winery, that hasn't had all of the investment. There are one or two. I, I talked about the fact there are a couple of small independent producers, but not many. And since the 80s, that has been an inexorable movement that the big guys have eaten up the little guys and they have taken the small plots of vines and added them so you've lost that's a cultural loss really you've lost a lot of the names that were that you would have seen in the 80s that you'll you'll no longer find because they're included in the vineyard footprint of the big guys so there is less difference less um heart in some ways in Poyak than they would have been in the 1980s, just purely from from this idea of um, getting rid of these small independent producers. But at the same time, what this means, and where 1855, the classification, the drawback, it never changes. It's been as it is more or less since 1855. The plus is, it's no longer a ranking. What it is, is it's an idea. What it is, is it's a piece of history, but it's also an impetus to chateaus to do better. If you've got that name on your label, you have a reason to invest. Um, in the 70s, we talked about this briefly earlier, a lot of chateaus nearly went out of business, but sorry, not chateaus, the names, because in the 20th century, they, they allowed their vines to dwindle because they had no money. In the 1960s, they tried to redo the 1855 classification. There was a big movement to do so. And one of the reasons it didn't happen was because about 5, 10, up to 12 chateaus that had been named in 1855 had nearly disappeared. If it wasn't for that ranking, they probably would have done. But because there was the 1855, the dream of it, the history of it, it gave a reason for those producers rather than just saying, oh, well, we'll forget about Claire Millon. It gave them a reason to, to replant, to invest, and to grow those names again. And Poyak has been a, a very important center of that reinvestment. I talked briefly about this earlier, but what you're finding in Poyak right now is 
particularly these classified guys, because there's very few other others, there's crew bourgeois, but particularly the, the classified guys, they are working very, very hard on trying to make sure that the quality of their wine is deserving of these prices that they're asking. I feel as frustrated as everybody else does about the prices that are being asked. But the benefit that I can see is this idea of reinvestment, which is happening every day in, in Poyac. But I mean, to me, it sounds a little bit like a tale of two cities when we mm, talk about Bordeaux. Totally. I mean, it's almost a shame that it's summed up as one kind of wine because it seems like there's a have and have not cycle that's happening. I think it's um, happening and has always happened. Like when we talked about the aristocracy tracing the history of the economic powerhouses through Bordeaux wine, that's always been a separate conversation really to the rest. What has changed is that until the 80s and 90s, until this most recent explosion of prices, those top wines were a locomotive that pulled the rest of the region. So you did get this kind of star power, this idea of hitching your wagon to a star, the reflected glory. Now, and I'm sorry to many of the classified chateaus, but I think they can actually do harm today to the smaller producers because the idea, the kind of innate reaction now is, oh, forget Bordeaux. It's too expensive. It's only for collectors. It's only for wine funds. It's not for real drinkers. And I think they are they are being harmed by the fact that these top guys are are so now on a different level price-wise. And so I was in Rioja in Spain earlier in the in the year. There was one producer there called um, Remelori who spent a weekend getting a ton of small producers around Spain to discuss reconnecting with their terroir. It's a problem in many of these developed wine regions that the pluses, they get a lot of business but the loss is that you can lose connection to your soils so anyway this weekend was getting a lot of small producers from around the country talking about how to improve that bordeaux was used during that weekend as a shorthand for what they didn't want to happen it was really fascinating for me to sit there and to hear really a lot of the producers laughing when bordeaux's name was mentioned in a in a very dismissive way of boy, those guys don't care about wine anymore. And it's so sad for Bordeaux if, if they don't realize that that is what they are risking by making the conversation too much about money. And I know, and we're talking about it today, that is not the whole conversation in Bordeaux. There really are a ton of different wines. It's why I can still live there after 14 years as a writer and still find new stories every day about what's happening there. But they, they run the risk, without a doubt, of losing and i i worry for some of them that they really need to change course quickly to get the conversation back to being about what's what's real which is the wine itself and they can talk a great talk but they need to put it more into into action and these small guys have to stop relying i think on this reflected glory of being part of bordeaux and forge their own conversation and it's starting to happen but they need to go a, a lot further with it you mentioned John claude Barraway, and I saw him speak recently, and he said something really fascinating, which was that uh, the idea that you wanted a wine to taste like the soil is a fairly new idea, and that not so long ago, that was actually kind of declassé, kind of like peasant wine in the Bordeaux region to make a wine that tasted like the soil. And I could see, being in that milieu, how harmful 
the seed of that idea when it germinated that the wine wasn't supposed to taste like the soil could be in this market. Whether or not it's good for the wine is totally separate question. But in the market that I see in New York, if a wine doesn't taste like the soil, I don't know who's going to champion you at this moment. Yeah. And so with the conversations that we've had about ripeness and markets, you know, I wonder sometimes if it isn't just one step more than that behind it, which is an idea that, you know, actually it's not supposed to taste like peasant wine. It's supposed to be expensive wine. I think this goes right back to the steps that you've seen in Bordeaux over the 20th century and up till today of getting into the cellar and making the wine. They had they had to, like everybody, understand how to control temperature, how to avoid brett and all of these other spoilage by better um, cleanliness and health of the barrels. And there were all kinds of very important enological steps which had to be taken. But the danger that Bordeaux had, and it goes right back to what Barraway said, is to not then bring it back out to the vineyard. Because and it has to mean something. It's so easy for them to say. All winemakers say you need great grapes to make great wine. But if you're not actually putting that into place by then talking with love about your vineyard, by doing all the things that you see Italian winemakers do so well, Burgundy winemakers do so well, because it's real. They are out there. They are making the wine. I was at um, Lafon Rocher, which is in Santa Steph. It's a fourth growth, a classified fourth growth, but one of the kind of more under the radar ones. The guy who makes Lafon Rocher is the guy who is out in the vineyard. He does the pruning. He has, he has a technical team as well, but he is very much part of it. And that is what the classified growths need to start doing much more, putting it into, because we're not idiots. You know, the, the, uh, the people who drink the wine and who love the wine we want that conversation. That's the way that the market is nowadays. And now, you know, we go to our to restaurants and we want to know where the foods come from. Farm to table has become such a big part of the food market today, of the way that we culturally experience restaurants and the way that we talk to our friends about, about how we eat. And that is happening in wine as well. There is this shift towards elegance. What I see as elegance is taking the veil away from the terroir getting this conversation being more direct about the type of soil and the people who make it and what you get in your glass the artisan producers in Bordeaux are doing it but they haven't got good enough at talking to people about it because they've got so lazy is the wrong word but they've got so used to just the word Bordeaux being enough today the word Bordeaux is not enough you need to have those conversations and so the classified growths have I guess a different set of problems they ignore that at their peril. They ignore the market of people who really, really want to know how, why, what it tastes like, what it feels like, what it looks like. So that's an important conversation that they need to not forget. Jane Anson is paying close attention to the conversations in Bordeaux. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Jane Anson is the Bordeaux correspondent for Decanter Magazine, and she's just about to see the release of her book, The Club of Nine, which she wrote and collaborated with the photographer Andy Katz. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, 
and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.